Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're learning about real Japanese home cooking from one of the country's most renowned culinary instructors, Sunoko Sakai. She'll give us a crash course in Japanese pickles, how to make the world's easiest broths, and the surprising way she needs her noodle dough. A KitchenAid can only need so much, and then it gets kind of hot, and you know you have to stop the KitchenAid and let it rest, and your feet can just keep going, and the stomping on the dough activates the gluten. Also coming up, we share our recipe for a fresh take on the chocolate cookie, and later Dan Pashman and I discuss the art of eating alone on Valentine's Day. First up today, we're chatting with journalist Dave Herbert about his article, The Caviar Con. Dave, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about caviar. Only the row of beluga, Russian sturgeon, Persian sturgeon, etc. is considered to be authentic caviar. And the really good stuff is incredibly expensive, right? So after the fall of Soviet Union, all of a sudden it's hard to get the good stuff and prices go up. So what happens? People look for substitutes and where do they go? Yeah, so it turns out that there's a fish in the middle of the country called the American paddlefish. And then at some point about three decades ago, Russian and sort of Slavic people who passed through this area started to realize that the the roe actually tasted quite similar to, to the stuff that they were used to back in the Soviet Union. And poaching kind of predictably ensued. So a, a paddlefish, describe a paddlefish. How big is it? So it's a pretty ridiculous looking fish. It it's, you know, can weigh up to 160 pounds. It can be seven feet long, including this needle nose snout that it has. Um, if you stood it up, it would kind of look like the Chrysler building almost, uh, you know, in New York. <laughs> and and only slightly smaller. Only slightly smaller. Uh, yeah, they're, they're enormous. And they're actually, you know, a lot of fun to catch. You don't really catch them with a fishing pole. You, you snag them. You literally, you know, have to get them close to your boat and then hook them with this enormous gaff. And it's a real struggle to pull them up. And when you catch one, it's a rush. You know, you normally you'd have to go to the ocean to catch a fish this big. Right. Missouri, not near an ocean. Um, and yet you can get a really cool photo of you holding this monstrous prehistoric fish. Warsaw, Missouri is the place the story takes place. And 10 or 15 years ago, they started seeing signs of poaching. So all of a sudden, people got hold of the notion that uh, this was actually a source of caviar. Yeah, so in the 80s, there had been a, a really major poaching operation where there really was a, a cartel that was catching these fish, mixing them with legal fish, sending them to New York, sending them, some people say, over to Europe, uh, both labeled legally as paddlefish caviar and then also illegally as you know Russian caviar. And so it was with this in mind that the local conservation agents, when they started hearing reports of Russian accents, Ukrainian accents, 
you know, Mercedes pulling into town, they were very aware that this had happened before and their their guard was was up right. for sure. So tell me about the guy, the investigator, lead investigator. His name is Greg Hitchings. Who is this guy and how does he get involved with this? Yeah, so Greg Hitchings is an interesting guy. He was basically considered a genius uh, in the Missouri game warden community in terms of undercover investigations. Uh, and so when the local agents caught wind of Russian accents and fish guts on back roads, they called in Greg Hitchings. And he came to town and was trying to think of a good undercover operation to catch the poachers that they thought were out there. Uh, and he came up with Operation Roadhouse. So what was Operation Roadhouse? What was he doing? Well, so typically the way these game wardens will catch poachers is they'll be patrolling up and down the river. They hope to catch a guy, you know, with too many fish in his boat. But ultimately, you know, that method has you running around this very large area, probably not catching that many people. They had some men to the, at their disposal, but not a ton. And so they basically decided they were going to get the poachers to come to them. And what they did was they found this incredible location right by, really right at the border of where you can begin snagging fish. And it was an old abandoned restaurant bar that had a big dock. And so they leased it and they basically put out word that, you know, for seven bucks a day, you could come down there and snag and wink, wink, we're not really going to enforce the two paddlefish limit per day. And word got around pretty quick uh, all over Missouri and then all over the country that this was the spot to go to. And scores and scores of guys descended on this place to start illegally poaching. And so this is high tech or this is just low tech? Yeah, it was pretty high tech. Uh, They had, you know, in the little bait shop that they set up, they had a hidden camera. Hmm. And they, you know, fishermen are known, I think, for for boasting about the fish they catch. And so they, they had a board where they you could chalk up the size of the fish that you'd caught and literally guys are are confessing on this board to catching multiple, you know, fish a day, confessing to their crime essentially on camera. It's pretty ingenious. They also had little keychain cameras that a lot of the undercover guys who were posing as dock workers carried. So it was fairly high tech for a poaching operation. How long did this operation last? Just one season? So they did it for two seasons. Two seasons. But yeah, they they basically they looked around. They saw these guys catching all this fish. There were guys at a motel across the street who were actually gutting fish and preparing the caviar and, and canning it. Uh, there were guys going around town away from the dock actually buying fish from undercover officers for hundreds of dollars. There was a guy, a couple guys, and there was a, let's be clear, there was a lot of drinking going on at this dock. Uh, there were poachers who were boasting, I can make this many thousands of dollars selling it in Chicago. So there was a fair amount of circumstantial evidence that there might be some sort of caviar mafia that had descended on this town. So the denouement, the the end result of all this, was that that was really not what was going on at all, right? No. So the morning of the the bus, it was something out of a you know Netflix show. Uh, they had guys across multiple time zones doing raids on the homes of different poachers that they'd identified as potentially being, you know, major distributors of of paddlefish caviar. They arrested them. And over the course of the day, as they're interrogating these guys, it became clear these weren't, you know, a a caviar cartel. These were guys who really liked caviar and liked fishing. (laughs) I I love So they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in a two-year operation with cameras and keychain cameras and this and that and the other thing. 
And they dislike caviar. Yeah, millions yeah. of dollars they spent on this operation. Yeah. yeah, and there were federal prosecutions and all this stuff. And these were just guys who liked drinking <laughs> and getting some caviar. Yeah. And making up stories about how they were going to sell it for thousands of dollars. So um, in the lead investigator, did, at the end of the day, he was promoted and this was a success for him? Or he just viewed this as kind of a strange way to spend a couple fishing seasons? Um, he retired shortly thereafter, uh, but is still you know, sort of widely celebrated in the department. And however you view the use of resources to catch these guys, it was a pretty ingenious operation that he set up. Uh, he just caught minnows instead of big fish, I guess. Dave, thank you so much, uh, and thanks for being on Mill Street. Thank you. That was Dave Herbert. His article for Long Reads is called The Caviar Con. Right now, Sarah Moult and I are ready to solve your culinary mysteries. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? Chris, I'm great, and I'm ready to go. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, I'm Julie from Berkeley, California. How can we help you? So I'm calling about French versus American flour. Mm -hmm. I know that French flour has a different protein and less gluten content than American flour. And to me, it also tastes different. But I'm wondering if there's a substantive difference that would make it worth it for me to switch to French flour for my baking. And I'm wondering if it'll improve not only the taste of what I'm baking, but if it'll reduce some of the ill effects of gluten. You know, that's a really interesting question. I've had a number of people tell me that when they use Italian or French flour, they don't have the same sort of ill effects they have with American flour. I'm not really sure why. There are some differences. There's different gluten content. There are different types of wheat. But nobody has ever substantiated that in terms of digestion or anything else, the difference, although I've heard people talk about that. You could try it. The only problem would be is it how fresh is it by the time you're getting it here? And are you getting the right gluten content? For example, some French flour might end up being the equivalent of cake flour here. So you'd have to make sure you get the equivalent of all purpose, which would be 10 to 12% gluten. In Italian flours, another thing people usually don't understand is they have a different, like, zero, zero, zero. That has nothing to do with gluten content. When you buy Italian flour, they have that system, but that's just about the coarseness of it. I would try it, and I know people who swear that that is a difference. Cool, I'll try it. So you used to eat the breads in France, and it was all fine in Italy, and then you're in the United States, and now you're eating them, and it's not fine? Yeah, exactly. I lived in France for about five years and would eat anything I wanted. And then I moved back to the U.S. and was sick pretty often, and my doctors recommended quitting gluten. Um, I actually just got back from a trip to France where I was eating gluten again and interviewing bakers to ask them what they thought about this phenomenon of gluten intolerance in the U.S. And they said it's not just about the flour. It's about how the wheat is grown in the first place. It's about right. how the bread is made and the process of fermentation to make the bread. Right. So I think it's a lot more complicated than just the flour. I think that's flour. probably true. But when you stopped eating gluten in the United States, did you feel better? I did feel better. No, I, I think you actually came up with the answer, which is it's how the wheat is grown. Are there insecticides on it? Is it organically grown? How is it processed? How is it fermented? How's the bread done? And you're right. You know, when I'm in Europe, I find there's no problem at all in Italy or France with their baked goods. 
Maybe that's because I'm drinking lots of wine at the same no, time. No, you're just happy yeah. camper. Try it. The only question is getting the right gluten for the level. really fresh stuff. It, fresh and also with the right the gluten, gluten, gluten content. Yeah, which but, you need. Yeah, I would give a shot. All right. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks Thank for you calling. So much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Ariane Mandel. Ariane, where are you calling from? I'm calling from New York. How can we help you today? So I keep kosher, and I've seen this recipe floating around for buttermilk marinated chicken. So I wanted to know what a good substitute would be to get that tangy and also, I, I guess, the juiciness that happens when you marinate something in buttermilk. I think you're talking about Samin Nasrat. Yeah, what happens in her recipe, it's buttermilk is a tenderizer, but also there's salt involved, so it's a brine as well. So it's sort of a double whammy, and obviously it's a little acidic from the buttermilk. I think you could probably attempt it with a soy or an almond milk and some salt Mm -hmm. and perhaps a little bit of lemon for the flavor. And I believe she marinates it overnight. Okay, would you like a, a contrary point of view here? Go ahead. I don't think the buttermilk is doing anything at all. I think it's just the brine. So I think if you simply brine the chicken overnight, dry it off, and then put whatever you want on top, it maybe has some sugar in it and spices. Secondly, if you okay. want color, there are lots of ways to do that. Do a spice rub that has some sugar in it, whatever you want. But the buttermilk itself, I don't think is necessarily that important. I, I would just skip the buttermilk and brine it. Rub it with okay. a paste, rub it with a spice rub that maybe has a little sugar in it, and you'll get a nice dark skin. Uh-huh. But then also another follow-up question is how do I, I mean, I know sort of the answer to this. How do I get it so the whole chicken is browned all throughout instead of just like the top? You could spatchcock it. You know yeah. what that is when yeah. you take the... I tried that this weekend. It turned out great. Yeah, that's I the... did it in a cast iron skillet with a yep. crusade on the top. So That's perfect. Just removing the backbone and flattening is the, yep, I did that. the best way. That's the way yeah, to go. Sarah's right. See, Sarah? See? Occasionally we agree. <laughs> Not often, but <laughs> Not once in a while. Often. I have to tell you guys, this is my favorite of all the food podcasts. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for calling. Yes, You're Arianne. welcome. Okay. Thanks a lot. Okay. I'll Take let care. you know. Bye-bye. All right. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a question about Instant Pot dinners or slow cooker suppers, give us a ring anytime. 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Yes, this is Adam from New Orleans. How are you? Just fine, and you? Pretty good. How can we help you? So uh, last year, I planted a crop of sugarcane around my property in New Orleans, and I uh, was looking forward to harvesting this year and trying to make some cane syrup. How much juice are you going to get out of the cane you have? From what I gather, about 10 gallons of juice which, from research I've learned, will reduce down to about a gallon of syrup. Okay. And so do you have something to boil it in, or you're trying to find something? Well, so I was doing research online and uh, came across sort of two options. I wanted to know which would be the better. Of course, traditionally, a cast iron sugar kettle. Or I also found a copper vessel. But I've also found that there's, you know, some cautionary tales of poisoning cooking with copper. I wanted to know... Given the option, which would be the best vessel to cook down my sugarcane in? Well, copper is often used for making jams, and the reason is it conducts heat well, and with jams, you have to get the temperature of the jam exactly right so it sets up properly. You're essentially boiling water. 
<laughs> with some sugar content in it. It's just right. like maple syrup. It makes absolutely no difference what you boil it in. All you're doing is evaporating the liquid to get to the right sugar content, which is probably 27% of whatever it ends up being. So you can cook it in anything. I guess I would ask you, what are you cooking it on? So the plan was brick fire pit outside. There you um, go. Sort of, you know, to do it more traditionally. Right. Just get the biggest container you can. I don't know if you can hold 10 gallons, but maybe you do two batches of five. I would think a cast iron cauldron or whatever you want to call it, that's going to weigh, that's going to be pretty heavy, but it would be really cool to do that. I mean, I, I just think this is a fabulous idea. You know what? I, I go for the cast iron cauldron. I think that's just really cool and it'll be big enough, hopefully, to do the whole 10 gallons. I mean, the problem is this will take a while. It takes a very long time to boil it down. So I would try to get a pot that's going to handle the entire output. You know, the other thing you can do, you could also, I think, just drink it. Straight up. Yeah, if you wanted to. Of course, with vats, 10, 10 gallons, gallons you'd have to have a juice. really big party. But I'm for you. Do it outside. Get a big cauldron. Yeah, why not? Good for you. Yeah. It's easy. You're just boiling. Right. That's kind of the plan is to make a, you know party out of it, you know, sort of invite the community through and, you yeah. know, have friends through and we're just cooking think, cane syrup all day. Yeah, and roast a pig at the same time. That's what I used to do. <laughs> um, one last thing. Do you have a hydrometer, by the way? No, but I did know that I need one yeah. to test the viscosity of it, correct? Exactly. It has the little thing that bobs up and down. You have to get it just right. Uh, that's the only way you can really tell. And you also have to set your thermometer every day because the ambient pressure changes, which means the boiling point changes. You want to get the liquid up to seven degrees above boiling, but you got to set it every day. But get a hydrometer and, and get a thermometer. Absolutely will. Cast iron it is. Man, this is great. And so please send us a photo. Yeah, I, I want to see a I picture I was going to say invite us to the party. Video. Absolutely will. Yeah. All right. No problem. Yes. Thanks. Thank you. Take care. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with Sunoko Sakai, author of Japanese Home Cooking. That and more after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. 
The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Sonoko Sakai. She's a cook, culinary teacher, also author of the book, Japanese Home Cooking. Sonoko, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. Hi, Christopher. Let's start with your family history. Uh, your family has gone across two very different cultures. Your great-great-grandfather was from Switzerland. Uh, your great-great-grandmother yes. was from Yokohama. So your family is no stranger to mixing cultures, right? Oh, yes. I grew up in a multicultural situation. Um, you know, I, I always heard my grandmother talking about her Swiss ancestors, and because of my father's work in the airlines, I was born in New York, and we basically moved back and forth like migrating birds every three to five years across the Pacific, San Francisco, Tokyo, Mexico, Kamakura, and Los Angeles. So, yes, I am uh, uh, someone who has many, many cultures 
which I feel it's, it's, I've always feel like that's kind of my, my treasure. One thing I love about your book is that it really goes to the core of the philosophy of Japanese cooking. And there was a, a story in the book, which I loved. There was an 83-year-old mother of a carpenter. The mother had grown the buckwheat, milled it, and made buckwheat noodles by hand. Yes. Could you just talk about that? Yes, that was my other life as a, a film producer. I um, made this film in the, in the countryside of Japan, and I was just really exhausted because we had a very difficult shoot and lots of snow. And, but the carpenter, he, he himself was already in his late 60s, and he says, you know, while you're in Nagano, you have to try my mother's soba noodles. And by the way, she grew the buckwheat she mills it herself in a stone mill, and she makes the noodles. So it was just such an honor to be invited to their home and be treated to this wonderful meal. And she was so humble that she wouldn't step out of the kitchen. She sat on the cold hardwood floors while she watched us slurp the noodles, and she was covering her mouth, smiling and laughing and it just made me so happy, and I, I, it was in, almost infectious. I said, I want to, you know, I want to be like her when I get closer to her age. I want to share this beautiful food tradition and, and preserve it in every way I can. You know, of all the cuisines in the world, Japanese cooking, and there are lots of different subsets of that too, may be the hardest for Americans to grasp Part of the reason is that there's some real philosophy behind it. You know, things in five, like five flavors, five colors. Maybe you could just go through that for us. Right. So um, this is something that I laid out in the beginning of my book, The Principle of Japanese Cooking, is based on a philosophy called gogyosetsu. In Chinese, it's called wuxing. And it's basically grouping things in fine to explain how things interact in our world, and there's some things that you already know, the five senses, the five basic tastes. But perhaps when you get to things like five colors, what are the five essential colors, the five elements? Um, there's white that expresses purity, red is fire, uh, green and blue, these colors bring comfort and appetite, black stabilizes and harmonizes the plate. And when you bring these five colors or five basic tastes or five senses together, you will find a sense of harmony. Because if one color just stands out too much, let's say if red stands out too much, that may overwhelm a dish. So we try to make sure that there's harmony and balance by looking at the variety of colors in a dish, or the variety of flavors in a dish. If one flavor stands out too much, then you are breaking the harmony. You describe in your book putting udon dough in, in double-wrapped in garbage bags and <laughs> stomping on them a hundred times on the floor yes. with either socks or clean feet. I think you have that little detail. Uh, so uh, why exactly do you, <laughs> do you need dough by stomping on it? Oh, it's the best way. If you put your dough in a KitchenAid, a KitchenAid can only need so much, and then it gets kind of hot and 
you, you know, you have to stop the KitchenAid and let it rest and your feet can just keep going. And the stomping on the dough activates the gluten. It, it, you're putting your whole body weight on it by stomping. It's, it works better than hand kneading. And it's done in Japan. If my, I took a udon class from an udon master, and he stomps every single one of his dough. He doesn't use a kneading machine. Because <laughs> he says it creates better elasticity, better chew, uh, just makes really good udon noodles. Uh, pickles, maybe you could just explain both the role of pickles in cooking and also how to make a quick batch. Right. So the role of pickles is very, very important. When you compose a meal, a Japanese meal, you have basically rice and pickles. Pickles is always there to aid in digestion. It also gives nice contrast. It also represents the seasons. And there's all kinds of pickles. There's quick pickles that you make by just rubbing salt. You could rub fermented salt that's made with fermented rice and salt. And there's uh, miso-based, soy-based. Japanese people love their pickles. And it is something that you will always have at the end of the meals. But also, they like to have it with tea. It used to be that if you go to the countryside, they'll serve you tea and bring out a dish of homemade pickles. And you just kind of munch on it. Give me some tips or ideas for how to put together a quick dish using your principles and what you know about cooking, but using an American refrigerator and kitchen. So I want to make a quick meal. I want to make some soup. Soup is easy. So what I do is I have these um, basic seasonings that you could make ahead of time, and it sits in my pantry. I call it tare, but it's my magic seasoning, which is made with soy sauce, mirin, and uh, if you want to put a little sweetener, then there's a little sugar in addition to the meeting. But that waits for me in my pantry, and it's good for six months. So that's always on standby. So if I want to make a quick soup, all I have to do is add that to the broth. Excellent. I mean, that's perfect. Let's talk a little bit about bento boxes. You said the other kids would sort of compare boxes. Uh, one of them had an artfully cut vegetables that look like a flower garden in the box. So do people compare and people had very different ways of giving their kids lunch in the bento box? Yes. So I grew up partially in Tokyo and I would sit with my girlfriends and we would compare our lunch boxes. And I had a couple girlfriends that their mothers made the most beautiful lunch. Whereas my mother was always so busy trying to make lunch for her, her five kids. So it wasn't always that pretty. <laughs> and sometimes she would put things that I did not like. Like it took me a long time to acquire a taste for shiitake mushrooms. I hated um, little fish. Uh, we, ha we call them shirasu, but baby sardines. And she would just cover the bento box with baby sardines and <laughs> shiitake mushrooms. And I would just go, oh, my God and uh, envy my friends. But, you know, like my son, who grew up, he was born here and grew up in America, he used to take my bento box to school every day. And one day he came back and says, Mom, I don't want your bento box anymore. And I was like heartbroken. I said, why? And he said, well, this boy said that 
this cadro, I, I, this taraco, this is like this cadro that he loved, looked like a finger. And he says, it looked like a finger sticking out of the rice. And <laughs> he, he made fun of that. And he says, I don't want that anymore. So for the rest of that school year, he took sandwiches to school. But later he recovered from that and he asked for bento again. And nowadays, children bring all kinds of things to school, which is wonderful. You know, we've become such an open-minded culture here in America that um, we don't have to suffer the way, you know, some of us had to when we were growing up. So you were born in New York City. You live outside of L.A. now. In the interim, you were in Tokyo, Mexico City, other places. Are you where you want to be in the world now? Definitely. I think that we are in an age that even if we don't travel, we could be in so many places because of the way we can connect with the world. So I am very happy being here. But that's a very long way from Japan, which is obviously near and dear to your heart. Yes. And I used to always long for Japan. And, and there was this feeling that the sojourn feeling that we were just here temporarily and we will eventually go back. And, you know, we were always waiting for the care packages to come from Japan. And I would look at my comic books and my mother would open the, the box of tea and nori and miso and she would be elated. But these days, there's more access to these ingredients. And I also don't look to Japan for, for getting all my ingredients. I have a way of using local ingredients. And even if they're not the authentic Japanese ingredients, I have learned to be more flexible, just incorporating those ingredients into my Japanese dishes, which is my way of cooking Japanese food authentically, my way. <laughs> so I think we have really evolved you know, in the last 30 years since I actually wrote my last cookbook, things have become more open and easier. And um, even though I am far away from Japan, I am really not that far away. Sonoko, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. Thank you so much for inviting me. That was Sonoko Sakai. Her latest book is called Japanese Home Cooking, Simple Meals, Authentic Flavors. I think it's fair to say that Japanese cooking is indeed a philosophy. It encompasses harmony and diversity through color, size of portions, temperature of food, texture, and quality of presentation. But Japanese tradition also requires that one come to the table without anger, eat for spiritual enlightenment, and also be thankful for the farmer who provides the food. And that's why I really love to cook. One can find a whole universe of possibilities in each and every bite. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, dried cherry chocolate chunk cookies. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. So we went all the way to Sydney, Australia to find a chocolate chunk cookie. Seems a bit excessive. Well, it's the best cookie in the world, so you go for the best cookie. So is this at a bakery? Where did we find it? So we found this at the Bork Street Bakery. They have bakeries in Sydney. They actually just opened one in New York as well. 
And what sets this cookie apart, it's a chocolate cookie with chocolate chunks, but it also has dried sour cherries. So you get a really nice balance between the richness and the tart sour cherry. So now you're asking me to go out and find dried sour cherries, are you? Au contraire. We <laughs> are going to make our own dried sour cherries, which is a really simple process. We take sweet dried cherries and add some balsamic vinegar, pop it in the microwave, and the cherries get nice and plumped up with that vinegar, makes them really nice and tart and tangy. And the method is pretty classic? It's a pretty simple chocolate cookie, melted butter. We add chocolate and cocoa powder to that, let that cool, and then in the mixer we mix together eggs and sugar, add that chocolate mixture with some vanilla, and then the dried ingredients, flour, baking soda, and salt. So the cherries go in, too, at some point, right? (laughs) They do. We made them. We want to add them. So we add in our homemade dried sour cherries, some chocolate chunks, which add a melty pocket of chocolate in the cookie, and then chopped toasted pecans. So all the way from Sydney, Australia, dried sour cherry chocolate chunk cookies. And I can cancel my flight. (laughs) Yes. Eat it right here. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for dried cherry chocolate chunk cookies at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman exalts the virtues of eating alone on Valentine's Day. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Most Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Malt and I will take on a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is John, calling from Boston. Oh, okay, in our neck of the woods. How can we help you today? I'm calling with a question related to some very hospitable and generous in-laws. Best kind. Who love to cook dinner for us every Sunday. But unfortunately, they're trying to cut salt entirely out of their diet. I don't want to be the guy rushing into their kitchen and let me cook dinner and let me do all this because we're there every week. Uh, but every once in a while, I'll try to cook something, and they usually love it, and they ask what's in it, and I say, well, there's a little bit of salt. And anyways, they love barbecuing and grilling, 
So there's usually meat on the table. And I know salt plays a number of roles with meat as far as in a marinade to open up the meat and pulling juices in. I'm wondering if there's something else that can do the same thing that's not salt. Maybe a different question is how do we get more flavor into a grilled dish, perhaps after we're done cooking without a lot of salt? Oh, this is really a problem. Were they told by their doctor to really cut back? They were. I can't say that they've entirely ruled it out because they both love getting takeout Indian food and Chinese food, but I don't think they realize how much salt is in there. There there goes Uh, that (laughs) right out the window. Here's the crazy thing, and I would never go against a doctor's orders, but salt used judiciously, if you sort of add it along the way, you end up using less salt. And it does its job much, much better than waiting till the end. But you're specifically talking about meat, correct? I guess all around. Let's just start at the beginning. They are concerned about using salt in their home cooking for medical reasons. I've said this many times. There are different studies, but 80 to 90 percent of their salt intake is not coming from their home cooking. It's coming from stuff you buy in the supermarket, the restaurants, takeout, etc., So the amount of salt, as Sarah just said, that you would use in home cooking is some studies say 10%, some say 20. It's a tiny percentage of your total salt intake. They are misguided in where to cut their salt. They should just not do the takeout. The second thing is there is a way to get flavor on the grill. Take a steak, for example, put it in a low oven, get it up to 90 degrees internal and finish it on the grill. That will actually increase the flavor of the steak. But without salt, I mean, it, you just got to have salt. There's no way around it. If you don't salt it, it's not going to taste good. But particularly with marinades, the way I understand it is you need salt yes. to kind of bring flavor inside the meat. The salt allows the meat fibers to absorb more liquid, but more importantly, retain them when they're cooked. Yeah. And that's what they do. So without the salt, you're not getting the benefit. And secondly, even with salt, Marinades don't penetrate very far, and they don't carry much flavor. No. The salt, however, is helpful because when you cook that meat, for example, it will retain liquid, and that's what the salt's doing. You know, you could just grab off the Internet one of these studies that says that almost all of your salt comes from outside the home. Um, you might just yeah. casually leave that yeah, around. Pr- print it out yeah, and, and leave it on it the out. counter. So anyway, uh, best of luck. Yeah. Sounds you got <laughs> yeah. your work right. cut out John, here, man. we're rooting for you. Yeah. Yeah. Take Thanks care. Very much. Thank All right. Thanks so much. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Justine from Houston. Hi, Justine. How can we help you today? I'm having difficulty with pies. My husband and I are transplanted northerners, and every year we go up to visit family in western New York along Lake Erie, and we raid the local farm stands for black raspberries, which are his favorite. And we bring them home, and I make a pie with them. And every year, the pie turns into a disastrous, goopy mess. And I have tried changing up the ratio of um, flour, one-drow flour, tapioca, gelatin, and cornstarch. And I just can't seem to get it right. So this year, our harvest is still in the freezer. I've been practicing every few weeks with a combination of raspberries and blackberries, and I just can't get it right. Are you familiar with the book Brave Tart by Stella Parks? 
No, I'm not. She's really great, and I highly recommend you get that book. She recommends weighing your fruit and then adding a certain percentage of tapioca and sugar. And her basic formula is 5.5% of the weight of the berries in tapioca. Okay. And then 25% of the weight in sugar. Because it's the water more than the pectin that affects the fruit. But the fact that it's frozen, I'm not quite sure what to do with that. Chris, your well, thoughts? Well, um, yeah, I, I've made a lot of berry pies. And first of all, forget cornstarch, flour. You want mint tapioca. Ta- that's, that's the, the only thing that's going to I know work. all the pastry okay. chefs love it. And on it. the back of the box, it's going to say use four tablespoons of tapioca for four cups of fruit, which is insane because you could play tennis with that by the time you're finished. I would say to start, two tablespoons of mini tapioca per four cups of fruit. You might want to back that down on the second try, but that should give you plenty of thickening power. The only problem you're going to have is if you use a lattice pie, where that mini tapioca is uh, exposed will become like a tic-tac. So either you use a a two-crust pie fully covered or you need to put that mini tapioca into a little spice grinder or whatever just to grind it up a little bit. But that should do it. The final thing is you really have to cool that pie way down. It's got to sit for hours and hours at room temperature till it really sets four or five hours to cool properly. Do you recommend cooking the fruit? Don't cook it. I think when you cook a filling for fruit before you bake it, you get you really dull the flavor of the fruit. I don't recommend doing that. You want a fresher fruit flavor. Don't pre-cook it. What about frozen versus fresh berries? I've never tested with frozen. Two tablespoons would be my starting point. Sarah may be right that once you freeze fruit, thaw it, and then put it into a pie, you have a different problem. It's possible. With these frozen berries, what I would do is strain them, save the juice, measure the berries, go with Chris's proportion, but I would reduce the juice and add it to the pie. It's a good idea. Mint tapioca, reduce the liquid. There you go. There you go. Okay. Thanks for calling. All All right. Thanks, Justine. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Most Day Radio. Sarah and I are ready to answer your questions. Please call us at 855-426-9843. That number, once again, is 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Allison Wolf from Bronxville, New York. Hi, Allison. What's your question today? Well, my question is about my broiler that I've never been able to find an answer to. I have an oven that I assume is unusual in that in order to use the broiler, I have to set it to a particular temperature. And it can go as high as 550 degrees or as low as 250 degrees. And every recipe I come across, when it directs you to broil, it says either heat broiler or set broiler to high. And this goes for every kind of recipe, be it fish or vegetables or meat. And so I never know what temperature the recipe is assuming my broiler is or what I should set it to depending on what I'm cooking. Well, first of all, is this an old stove? No, it's a fairly new-ish European oven. Well, the general temperature for broiling is between 500 and 600 degrees. Oh, it's that high. Oh, yeah. The element is usually at the top, correct? Mm-hmm. And the ideal space between the broiler and your item that you're broiling should be about four inches, maybe six inches tops. 
And you should also go back and read the instructions that came with your stove. I think most of the modern ovens, you're supposed to keep the door closed. But in the old days, you had to keep the door open for the broiler to work properly. So I would just double check, although I imagine closed is the way to go. But yeah, between 500 and 600. Well, can I ask a question? So you have one knob where you can set bake, broil, roast, et cetera, right? Yep. And then you have another knob which sets the temperature. Yep, you hit broil, and then you have to set a particular temperature. And I have had moments where I've definitely underbroiled, you know, had it on too low, and moments where I've definitely had it on too high. Does the knob that has the temperatures at the top, does it say broil at the very top, or doesn't say broil anywhere on the temperature? It just is a button that you push broil. I see. And then you have to set a separate I temperature. You just set at the top. There are other problems with broilers is they have hot spots. Yep. And preheating a broiler, I have this problem. I have to preheat it for 15 or 20 minutes because five or 10 minutes is just not enough to really get it going. Oh, that long. Yeah. Okay. It depends on your oven. But you can mine... sometimes tell if you open the door and you can see that it's bright orange or whatever. But you think when it just calls to set your broiler too high, I can actually go to 550 degrees? You yes. absolutely should. That is what you should always do. It should be at the max. Oh, okay. Yeah. It makes no sense, but the only thing I can imagine is you had a very sweet topping on a cake or something, and you just wanted to give it a little bit of color. You might not want to go all the way to the top, but yeah, it's always to the top. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's great to know. I was worried that maybe that was more like a pizza oven temperature. and that I would... No, no, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, no, it's called broil for a reason. It's yeah. Yeah, no, I guess that's hot. <laughs> it's hot. Broiling. Okay. All right, Allison. Yeah, give that a shot. Great. Thank you so yeah, much. Take okay. Care. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Kathy, and here's my tip for making stock. I use my 12-quart stock pot with the pasta insert. I place the insert in the pot and place all my stock ingredients in the insert. I then add water and cook until done. When my stock is done, I remove the insert with all the stock ingredients from the stock pot, and all that's left behind is the stock liquid. This is a lot less messy than pouring from the pot into a strainer. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's the unpredictable Dan Pashman. Dan, how are you? I'm good, Chris. Happy almost Valentine's Day. Uh, that's one of those things I forget till about 12 hours before. And then what do you do? I panic. <laughs> uh, because it's one of those days where everyone says, oh, it doesn't really matter, but it really does matter, mm. right? And so then what do you do when you panic? How, how do you remedy the situation? There's a flower shop three blocks from her house, and uh, she saves me every time. You just you come sprinting in, and she's like, here you go, Chris. I had your bouquet ready for you. B- basically, yeah, she <laughs> Right. Well, I kind of share your feeling about Valentine's Day. I mean, my wife and I aren't that into it, and I feel like it's one of those holidays that has become a bigger and bigger deal over time because it's a way for marketers to get us to spend money on things. And, I mean, restaurants on Valentine's Day are are just a nightmare. They're overpriced. They're overcrowded. You know, they're just trying to crank as many covers as they can. And so I'm I'm kind of advocating an anti-Valentine's Day, a day of solo self-care, of going out to eat in a restaurant that you want to eat at, and eating by yourself. Now, now, wait, wait. Now, this is odd advice. So you go out to a restaurant that's packed with romantic or at least supposedly romantic couples celebrating their love together. 
and you're you're sitting at the bar by yourself <laughs> having meze? Well, maybe I wouldn't go out on one of those prime Valentine's Day nights. Oh, I see. Okay. Celebrate okay. solo Valentine's Day on February 15th. Okay. Okay. That, that but sounds better. I, I more just want to speak in favor of the joys of going out to eat by yourself. When I travel, I very often do eat alone, actually, because of the odd schedule. You know, once in a while, it's actually quite enjoyable. You're right. What do you like about it? I like the quiet of it. Yes. And you can actually really enjoy your food. Yeah, I find that when I eat alone, I enjoy my food so much more because I'm really focused on it. And I also actually, I think I eat less because I'm getting so much pleasure from each bite and I kind of pause and think about the food and enjoy it and realize when I'm full instead of just like gobbling and gobbling because I'm in the middle of a conversation. <laughs> Here are two married guys with kids talking about the joys of eating alone. It's kind of an obvious thing, isn't it? I mean, it is. I have to say. Uh, the French and many other cultures do understand that eating is is a social act first and foremost. Many years ago in the 80s, I was in Paris and uh, I was by myself and uh, there was a, a table of eight people, French obviously, having a wonderful time and eating bread and drinking wine and hands were moving. It was just absolutely delightful. And there was an American couple who walked in with their shoulders slouched and they sat down at the table next to me and did not say a word for like an hour and a half. So I, I have to say the ultimate dining experience is probably with other people enjoying their company. But you're right. Once in a while, it, uh, it's a nice change of pace. Yeah, maybe the ultimate dining experience is with others, but the ultimate eating experience, I think, <laughs> I think is solo. And I actually interviewed Deepak Chopra on this subject. So I'll leave you, Chris, with, with some, really? of, some of his advice, which is that when you're eating by yourself, you should pause, yeah. look at the plate, look at the food, smell the food. Just take your time and observe all the little details of it. Breathe and appreciate it. Take a bite. Taste it. Chew it. Swallow Dan, it. Put your Dan, fork in your knife Dan, back. Dan. What? Dan. I'm having a moment what, here, What Chris. do you think Deepak Chopra was, was going to say? <laughs> just wolf it down and leave? <laughs> I mean, of course he's going to say that. Yes, but I'm just saying I followed his advice. I was in Richmond, Virginia at a place called Mama Jay's, and I had a fantastic piece of fried catfish there. And it was so much better because I was by myself. They had some tartar sauce and some hot sauce, and I was using both of those and experimenting with ratios until I got just the right tang and creaminess, just right. And it was so delicious and fantastic. And I would not have gotten so much pleasure from that if I had had to be carrying on a conversation. Okay, I, I just have to say, if I walked into a restaurant and heard someone going, Namio Renge Kyo Om, and it was you before eating your catfish. I'd be, I, I'd order you an old fashioned and tell you, let's get on with it, man. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't see you as, as someone who's meditating while you're eating catfish. I, I'm a lot more zen than you give me credit for, Chris. I don't give you any credit for it. So <laughs> evidently you are. Uh, Dan Pashman on the joys of meditation, Deepak Chopra, and uh, fried catfish. Thank you, Dan. Namaste, Chris. <laughs> That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sparkful Food Podcast. Dan Pashman suggests eating alone this Valentine's Day, but he's hardly alone in unusual ways to celebrate this holiday. My favorite tradition is, of course, from France. Many, many years ago, there was a love lottery. That means men and women faced off, calling out the names of the desired lovers and then pairing off. But the women who were not chosen would meet afterwards for a bonfire, burning pictures of men who had wronged them hurling insults at the opposite sex. So maybe Dan Pashman is in fact right. Just make a reservation for one this Valentine's Day and avoid the heartbreak. 
That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the new season of our television show, browse our online store, or order our latest cookbook, The New Rules, Recipes That Will Change the Way You Cook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Bernal Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.